Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And that is why tableware was so important for the founding of the country. Oh, that is fascinating. I can't believe you learned that from a podcast. The world really needs more outlets for this sort of infotainment. Everybody stop what you're doing and listen. What? What? This is not a drill. You asked for more outlets for high quality infotainment and you're going to get more than you can handle. The Agora Podcast Network is bringing together names like Mike Duncan, David Crowther, and Kevin Stroud to the same place at the same time at a convention devoted to educational podcast content. No No way. way! way on june 29th from 11 a.m to 7 p.m agora is bringing you the intelligent speech conference will it just be those three no in addition to mike duncan of the history of rome and revolutions david crowther of the history of england and kevin stroud of the history of english many of your favorite agora podcast network hosts will be there including royfield brown of mid-atlantic sander and eric fogg of reconsider steve guerra of the history of the papacy podcast uh, Cloud Myron Guzer of the Cannonball Podcast, Aziz Alduri of the History of Westeros, Brian Stitt of the History of Ancient Greece Podcast, and Benjamin Jacobs of Wittenberg to Westphalia. Wow, those are all amazingly talented individuals. Really talented individuals. Some of them are amazingly talented even more than others, but surely <laughs> there are too many for one day. Have you never been to a convention before? There'll be three conference rooms featuring panels, talks, and laser tag. Well, okay, there won't be any laser tag, but definitely a full day of panels and talks from a dozen of the best podcasters on the planet. And tickets are only $80. Hmm, that does sound good. Wow, I'm sold, but how do I get there? The venue is conveniently located near a variety of exciting subway stops. If you want to drive your car in Manhattan for some reason, you can do that too, but parking is expensive. I recommend the train. What an amazing idea! And some fine urban planning knowledge. But does this Manhattan have anything to do other than the convention? Are you kidding? Oh, you're not. You're not kidding. Okay. Um, well, Manhattan is one of the most exciting places on the planet, and the venue is located in the heart of wonderful Chelsea, one of the key cultural destinations in the city. Only a few long, long blocks from the High Line, and a short subway ride from dozens of museums, restaurants, and shopping. Make it a weekend trip and have an amazing time. Wow, I'm booking my hotel now. Where can I get tickets to Agora's Intelligence Speech Conference? To go to the conference and see Mike Duncan, David Crowther, and Kevin Stroud live and in person, simply go to intelligentspeechconference.com. Awesome! Oh, awesome! Just for the record, they're both giving a thumbs up. You can't see it because it's an audio medium, 
but I just thought you should know because it's very impactful. But remember, Mike Duncan, David Crowther, and Kevin Stroud, together, in the same place at the same time. And to learn more, you can go to intelligentspeechconference.com. Good evening, everyone. This is Daniel from The Cannonball with a special bonus presentation. Um, this is actually going to be the first time I'm ever recording a podcast solo. Uh, it's going to be, uh, well, if it's a little rough around the edges, uh, it is because this is a, uh, well, it's a personal one for me. And also, I am not really, I'm not skilled enough at editing to do multiple takes and splicing things in and whatnot. So uh, apologies in advance. But I did hope y'all did enjoy the uh, little playlet that we had uh, at the top of the special bonus episode, the uh, Advertising Course Agora Podcast Network's Intelligent Speech Conference. Um, so if you can make that, you absolutely should. But why am I here to talk to you this evening? I've, I've poured myself a, uh, a Voodoo Ranger New Belgium beer. Uh, New Belgium, of course, my preferred brand of beer as they are uh, employee-owned. And if you can't buy employee-owned, buy union. I wanted to talk to everybody today about a a writer, an author, who has recently passed away and who really meant a lot to me. And it's kind of an odd thing to talk about because when we talk about authors that mean a lot to you, typically by the time you're grown, they don't come around very often. I mean, just kind of think about it. What, you know, when's the last time that you discovered a new author that you didn't just appreciate, but that genuinely changed the way you thought about reading? the way that you felt about reading. And that for me was an author named Gene Wolfe, who passed away, I'm recording on the evening of the uh, 5th of May, 2019. And Gene Wolfe passed away, um, I guess about three weeks ago now, uh, in the middle of April, uh, at the age of, I believe, uh, 87, he was, he was in his 80s. And he's a, a writer who had been active. Um, his first published story was in the 50s, but he didn't really pick up until the, uh, or his, his career didn't really take off until the 1970s. Um, but what I'm going to talk about tonight, it's not going to be any kind of biography of Gene Wolfe. It's not going to be any kind of exhaustive bibliography. It's not going to be, um, <laughs> it's not even going to be any kind of coherent um, literary critique. Uh, I wrote a blog post for, uh, that we posted on the Cannonball, uh, blog a couple days ago. If you have not checked the blog, please do. Uh, Claude is writing a lot over there. I need to be writing a lot more. I, I was, I was moved to begin writing. This actually all started as a blog post that I was going to write to post to that blog. And, uh, soon after I started, I realized I was going to have a lot more to say than, uh, than would make for an easily digestible blog post. But I started you know, I started my comments over there and uh, I don't want to rehash that too much. So go ahead, you know, go over to the blog and check it out. But I guess, yeah, what I wanted to talk to you guys tonight about is an author who really changed the way that I felt about what writing could be, what fiction can be, what I wanted fiction to be. And there's no good way to do that as far as I'm concerned, or rather there's no better way to do that than I don't know. I just wanted to tell all of y'all about this writer who I think is amazing and all the reasons why. What were the reasons why me as a reader responded so much to his work as uh, as I discovered it? Uh, and as it happens, I discovered it around a time in my life which was 
full of a lot of changes. I didn't really know at the time just how pivotal it was going to be. And maybe that has something to do with, I don't know, maybe that has something to do with why I was in a place to be so affected by art, so ready to be impacted by literature. I can't, I can't say. I can only say in my own sort of biography with the writing of Gene Wolfe that when I did discover it, it was about a decade ago, a little over a decade ago, I started a new full-time job, the, uh, the one that I'm, I'm still in, actually. I'm still, I'm still with the library that I just started, but it was my very first full-time professional library position. I had recently finally come to the realization that a uh, kind of years-long on-again, off-again relationship was all just god-awful and I didn't need to have anything to do with it. And even though that's a kind of a liberating moment, it's also a little disorienting. I, I don't know how many of you out there have had a moment like that. I, I hope not very many, just because it requires, you know, a kind of years-long state of limbo. But it stinks. But it's also, I mean, when you finally realize to yourself that you don't care anymore, it's, well, kind of the floor opens up underneath you a little bit. And a few months uh, after I would uh, start reading the work of Gene Wolfe is when I met the person who became my spouse, uh, the person who really was the love of my life, the person who the person who showed me that I didn't actually I actually hadn't been in love with some you know with with these people I thought I had been um, not in the way that I, I could be with somebody. So my feelings about Gene Wolfe. And they must necessarily be wrapped up in the fact that this was a, he came into my life in the, at the same time that all these kinds of pivotal things were all happening. But it was also a time in my life when I was reconnecting with my love of science fiction. I was reconnecting with my love of the fantastical and literature, the speculative and literature. I had gone many years without reading any fiction at all. Uh, I had my my reading life had actually taken a pretty severe nosedive after college, as I think you know a lot of a lot of folks who do go into secondary education um, that you know kind of happens when it's all over. Uh, and you had this uh, structure to your reading, which which demanded reading of you, um, that goes away. And well, you know, I'm not going to do as much reading. I still kept it up though, and I still read a lot of nonfiction. But um, it, it had been many years since I had read any science fiction. And working in a library, of course, you get uh, access to all kinds of wonderful things. And on a lark, I began this this journey on a, on a bit of a, a bit of a I don't know, just an impulse that we had gotten a beautifully illustrated edition, the cover illustration by I believe the artist is Thomas Kidd. It's just tremendous. A collection of stories called Songs of the Dying Earth, which was a collection of authors writing in a shared setting with. A, as a tribute to the author Jack Vance. I'd never heard of Jack Vance. The authors who had contributed, though, I had heard of. There was uh, Robert Silverberg, uh, Neil Gaiman, um, Dan Simmons. A lot of a lot of big-name science fiction and fantasy authors had contributed to this collection, which is what attracted it to me, that it was all in tribute to this guy I had never heard of. And I was spellbound. I loved it. I, I, I loved this uh, setting, this dying earth, setting that Jack Vance had created this kind of wildly over-the-top, uh, not exactly satirical, but uh, definitely farcical setting of the Earth 
many, many millions of years hence, where uh, our own time has been long forgotten in the mists of history. Uh, magic and sorcery has returned to the earth, and everyone is basically just, I don't know, stabbing each other in the back and biding their time and just being lazy and venal as they just kind of wait for the sun, the, the swollen red dying sun to gutter out. It was marvelous. It was, it was a, uh, it was really eye-opening that fantastical literature could be done in this kind of mode of writing in an almost sort of fable tone with a, a kind of a serious non-seriousness to it. This uh, utterly arbitrary and often farcical magical happenings. I was really enchanted. And so of course I went back and read the original stories by Jack Vance and I would I would absolutely recommend anyone listening to this now to please go read that. I can't make this make this too long, but I really fell in love with that aesthetic of the dying earth, and I wanted to read more stories that were written with that sort of, you know, it was, it was kind of a subgenre was inspired by Mr. Vance's work, um, not just with these tribute stories. And so I wanted to read more in that, and that's when I, in reading sort of here are some other dying earth story uh, kind of lists and articles, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun was high up on sort of everyone's list. This was the this was the one to go for. I had never heard of Gene Wolfe. And this was especially embarrassing to me that I'd never heard of Jack Vance or Gene Wolfe because I, in my younger days, had been a voracious science fiction reader with basically all of the mid-century kind of big names under my belt, your Clark and Asimov and uh, Bradbury and, and all those guys, and on up into the, uh, you know, anything I could find on the, you know, the paperback racks at uh, Books A Million or Barnes & Noble. Um, <laughs> I don't know how many of you out there remember the Bantam Spectra uh, imprint of science fiction paperbacks, but I was a, uh, a frequent uh, uh, customer of theirs. But I'd never heard of either of these guys. And part of that might just be due to the fact that uh, a lot of my science fiction education was raiding my dad's paperback shelf, and Wolf and Vance were both down kind of the bottom shelves. You know, they escaped notice. As it happened, that I, I I did go back and uh, look at Dad's shelf, and he did he did have both those guys there. So this is this is entirely on me. I don't mean to impugn my dad for um, not providing me the material for the science fiction education. So I picked up a copy of uh, you could get it nowadays. It was a four novel series, The Book of the New Sun, that, which is now available in a and my preferred sort of way is a two omnibuses. So the first two novels are collected, and one the second two in another. And I started reading. And it was unlike anything I had ever read before in science fiction, in literary fiction, in anything. I was utterly captivated from the first page. Captivated and puzzled. Because the thing you have to understand about Gene Wolfe is that he is not... I don't want to say he's not an easy writer. Because I don't necessarily think that difficulty is, a, is necessarily a mark of quality. I, I, I do not believe that. But Gene Wolfe is a writer of quality who is also difficult. But that difficulty is intoxicating. It, it's, it shows a level of trust in the reader that is very uncommon. And it is especially uncommon in science fiction, which is, of course, notorious for you know, the practice known as the info dump, where <laughs> the author just lays out you know, paragraphs and paragraphs of uh, exposition, uh, and you're just sort of left trying to digest it all. The reasons why Gene Wolfe's writing, and I, and I, I want to say also that I'm not a completist. This is not any kind of review of everything that Gene Wolfe ever wrote. This is going to be me talking about the things that affected me the most of the Wolfe that I have read. Of course, I 
have made a project of being a completist after <laughs> uh, that's that's kind of fallen away, but I really should be a completist. And I think what really what really gets at the nub of the the just the sheer mind blowing captivation that Wolf generated in me is that he's an author who is puzzling. He writes puzzling fiction that is not necessarily a puzzle to solve. And it was li it was liberating to read. It was liberating in a sense that I never felt like my hand was being held, and yet there would be moments of epiphany and discovery when something that you'd read earlier made some sense. And so you would, I, for the first time in a, in a long time, and the first time I could remember, I found myself referring back to things in a work of fiction. I'd never really, that's not anything I'd ever really done before. But reading the book of the new, the new Sun did that to me. And I guess I should sort of describe what this work is and you know why, uh, just in, in broad terms so that you have a little more context of why, why myself as a, I guess not necessarily, you know, super grown up, but 25 years old is a, is a little old to be, you know, fallen on your keister in love with a new author. But the Book of the New Sun is a, is a work which is set, uh, it's it, it told in the first person, a character named Severian, who is sort of writing a biography. And he opens his biography talking about himself as an apprentice torturer working in the citadel of a political power known as the Autarch. And he lives on planet Earth, and it becomes, it's hinted at very, but this is not a spoiler at all, because it's its hinted at very soon, and, and the, the reader gets a sense very early on that this is an Earth extremely removed from our own in time, into the future. It is... It is an earth that has experienced civilization rising and falling dozens of times. It is an earth which is necessarily at least tens of thousands of years in advance of ours, more probably millions. But it's so far in the future that even the concept of trying to measure how far it is just doesn't even occur to people. It's in a state of post-history almost. And in writing a book like this, in creating a setting like that, uh, in, in, in setting characters within it, Wolf demonstrates just what an astounding wordsmith he is because he does his world building mostly by suggestion. He does his world building by creating an impression, but it's not, it's not tossed off. He's not world building just by filling in a weird word here or there, although there are plenty of weird words. But Mr. Wolf made it a point that all the there are no made-up words in the Book of the New Sun. They are all either English archaicisms or borrowed from other languages that we have today. And it's kind of according to the conceit that he has in an afterword that this was a document that he has translated into English and so felt that he needed to convey the strangeness of the uh, language through these, you know, borrowing these terms or these archaic terms. But one of my favorite examples, I think, of how this world building by suggestion works uh, occurs very early on in the uh, the first volume of the Book of the New Sun, which is entitled The Shadow of the Torturer, where uh, Severian has been sent on an errand uh, within uh, the Citadel, which is where the Guild of Torturers uh, is headquartered, which it, uh, it, it is uh, hinted very heavily that this is, in fact, a disused spaceport where all the various towers that they speak of within the Citadel are, in fact, derelict spaceships where all of these uh, these guilds that work for the Autark have uh, set up shop. 
but in it he he goes to a section of kind of storage uh, in the Citadel where he encounters a man who uh, sort of cleans and takes care of items which are uh, you know artworks or things which are which are stored away and uh, and, and here we are he's, he's very affected uh, by one here now I'll, I'll read here the picture he was cleaning showed an armored figure standing in a desolate landscape. It had no weapon, but held a staff bearing a strange, stiff banner. The visor of this figure's helmet was entirely of gold, without isolates or ventilation. On its polished surface, the deathly desert could be seen in reflection, and nothing more. This warrior of a dead world affected me deeply, though I could not say why or even just what emotion it was I felt. In some obscure way, I wanted to take down the picture and carry it not to our necropolis, but to one of those mountain forests in which our necropolis was, as I understood even then, an idealized but vitiated image. It should have stood among trees, the edge of its frame resting on young grass. So here this young man, this apprentice torturer of the far future, is attempting to process and understand what is to us an instantly recognizable and iconic image of an astronaut standing on the surface of the moon. And it's he exists in a time and a place so removed from that that what is to us an instantly recognizable iconic image containing an instantly recognizable iconic emblem, the flag of the United States of America, is just a strange, stiff pole. He has no, no frame of reference for it. Uh, one of my other favorite ones from uh, Shadow of the Torturer, to, where Gene Wolfe uses the suggestion of antiquity to create this mood of of senescence, this mood of the oppression of so much past that it doesn't even, so much past that there cannot be a future, was uh, later on in the book. He remarks, I have heard those who dig for their livelihood say there is no land anywhere in which they can trench without turning up shards of the past. No matter where the spade turns the soil, it uncovers broken pavements and corroded metal. And scholars write that the kind of sand that artists call polychrome because flecks of every color are mixed in with its whiteness, is actually not sand at all, but the glass of the past, now pounded by eons of tumbling in the clamorous sea. When I first read this, as a, uh, as a young man getting back into reading fiction, uh, this passage especially, I just felt thunderstruck. I, I was struck by this imagery of beaches, which were in fact simply the pulverized by millennia remains of our seaside cities, our Miamis, our New York cities, rendered into strangely colorful beaches for these people of the far distant future. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It was this kind of writing, this kind of... I, I don't even really have quite the words to put it. This, this, 
world building by suggestion without the info dump, without the uh, it's suggestion, but it's not tossed off. It's suggestion, but you know that the that Wolf has thought about it. Wolf has the complete image in his in his mind, or at least as far as I'm concerned, it, it reads as though Wolf has the complete image in his mind, and he's he's showing you bits and pieces there, which makes sense for the the point of view character to be showing you. But it's never the whole thing all at once, and he trusts you to piece it all together. This was a kind of writing that I understand is not totally unique to Wolf, but it was unique to Wolf when I read him, <laughs> and it is it is something that I I appreciated. It felt vindicating as uh, as a reader that there was a writer there who trusted you, that there was a writer there who trusted you to make inferences to build an idea in your own mind, even though it's an incredibly bizarre and alien setting that he's building. Uh, and this 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 is a this runs through really all of uh, all of Wolf's work that I've read, um, even in his realistic fiction. He he actually uh, early on in his career in the mid seventies, the Book of the New Sun was uh, I guess I should say was published beginning in nineteen eighty. It was in the first half of the eighties that uh, those four books came out, but it was in the uh, the seventies that Wolf sort of first made a splash. And one of those books is uh, a book entitled Peace. Um, which I, after I read it, I recommended to everyone that would possibly listen to me. It's a, a semi-autobiographical book, uh, and it's mostly set in the Midwestern United States of America uh, around sort of the same time that Gene Wolfe has been alive. It's, it's a, a, a semi-autobiographical story ranging from the 1930s up into what would have been his present day in the 1970s. Again, a first-person point-of-view character, which is seems to be Wolf's preferred mode, is always first-person point-of-view writing, recounting his life in a way that dips back and forth and seems to be... It's, it's very difficult to describe. Again, this is a work that is puzzling, and it, it might also be a puzzle to solve, but... In reading it, the pleasure comes just from it simply being puzzling in in that distinct Wolfian way, even though he's writing about, <laughs> he's writing realistic fiction set in the same kind of society that I came up in. It still has this ghostliness, this, uh, this otherworldliness to it, which of course might have something to do with the actual puzzle that is solved within it. I won't, uh, I won't spoil that for you. But this world building by suggestion, this, 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 Otherworldliness by hint is just one aspect of what I think makes Wolf a great writer and what just one aspect of what is so masterful in his writing for me. Another uh, Wolfian trait that is very much tied in with this kind of writing puzzling work that's not necessarily a puzzle is he is deeply, deeply in love with unreliable narrators. Almost every, I think almost every point of view character of all of the books that I have read by Gene Wolfe has an element of unreliability that the reader will pick up on fairly quickly and know uh, that things might not always be as they seem. But it's not always in the same mode. Uh, one, um, I think probably the, the finest example of this is in uh, a book he wrote uh, entitled uh, Soldier of the Mist, which is part of a series. He wrote more in these series with the main character, Latro, uh, which is, uh, have been collected under an omnibus called Latro in the Mist. 
But Latro, our uh, first-person uh, perspective narrator in these works, is a mercenary uh, under the employ of, uh, at the opening of Soldier in the Mist, he uh, has been under the employ of this or that uh, Greek warlord in the uh, kind of the, the, the High Hellenic era, we'll say the, uh, the 5th century, the 400s BC, who sustains a head injury in the midst of his profession, uh, and so loses his ability to create new memories. And so the conceit of Soldier in the Mist is that we are reading, uh, well, he, he loses his ability to retain memories from the day before after he goes to sleep, I should say. So we're reading his journal that he writes every night before he goes to sleep so that he can try to piece together who he is and why he's here every day when he wakes up. It is a remarkable, remarkable <laughs> way of narrating a man's story. And again, part of that, that, that Wolfian otherworldliness is that there, uh, Latro discovers that he can see and speak to the invisible powers in the world. He can see and speak to the satyrs and fauns, the, the gods of the crossroads that, of course, the ancient Greeks were convinced their, their entire world was saturated with. They're, their entire world, anywhere you would look, if there was a strange-looking rock or a tree, there there was a god there. There was some sort of spirit presence there. And Latro, thanks to his head injury, is either hallucinating these things or, thanks to his head injury, can now pierce the veil. He can now see them. He can speak with them. They can speak with him. It's a remarkable book. And um, not simply because of all of the reasons why Wolf is a remarkable writer, uh, but also I, I recalled reading as I was sort of reading more about Gene Wolfe as I fell more and more in love with his work, that he, he started, the, after he had started this book, after he had started this project, he discovered that a across-the-street neighbor of his was a, a retired classics professor. And so <laughs> Gene Wolfe would, uh, in the afternoons, walk across the street and basically be tutored in ancient Greek over the course of uh, writing this novel so that and the, then the writing of it, he tried to create the cadence, the vocabulary that would have been available to someone writing in ancient Greek as a second language, because our, our killing character Latro is actually a, he is an Italian. He is a, uh, he is either, uh, he's probably a Latin Italian, probably not from Rome, but uh, there in, in the Latin speaking area uh, at the time, which at the time Rome was a, a, a major league backwater. It was not a, an important place. Um, in any case, Another example of the uh, the unreliable narrator and how uh, Wolf would would use this uh, this method is in the book of the New Sun. Our narrating character Severian claims to have a photographic memory. He claims to have eidetic memory, which is one of the reasons why he explains he's able to recall these scenes from out his entire very bizarre and adventure filled life with such specificity and such detail. And of course. The problem is that as the reader reads all of these things, he, you know, uh, Severian will refer to an event that's coming later in the narrative or refer to an event that we've already read about, and he gets those details different. I can't say wrong because I wasn't there. I don't know what really happened to Severian. All I know is that he has two, maybe three different versions of the same event. So perhaps his memory is not quite as photographic as he thinks, or... Perhaps he does have a photographic memory, and the circumstances of his, uh, of which I won't uh, dwell on here because it's much too complicated to go into, it might have affected this in some way. 
Um, I think one of again one of the more notable ways that uh, Wolf plays with the unreliable narrator and the un and the unreliable narrative uh, is in a later work of his. I believe it was published in the nineties, maybe in the early two thousands. It was a uh, a duology, The Knight and the Wizard, um, which is known as the Wizard Knight duology. And in this, it's a I'm going to be honest with y'all. This is one I this is one I didn't even quite wrap my whole head around, uh, but it seems to, uh, at face value, be something of a uh, a fairly uh, you know, contains the tropes that we might expect from a, a fantasy novel, a post-Tolkien style fantasy novel, which was drawing on and inspired by Norse mythology and uh, and sort of Central European uh, medieval tropes. And every now and then, the point of view character slips into an adolescent in the 20th century who seems to have undergone some kind of trauma and speaks about being picked up by his brother or, or is talking about staying in a hospital. And it slides back in to the rest of the narrative. This kind of phasing in and out. And is it, I mean, is it, is it a, a boy who has experienced some sort of trauma experiencing this in a coma or is it a fantasy hero experiencing a trauma and phasing into experiencing a, a contemporary 20th century young man having a coma I, it's the it's puzzling is it a puzzle to solve i don't know but it's puzzling and wolf doesn't hold your hand he just presents it to you and it's up to you to make something of it that's one that i actually now that i'm talking about it, i want to revisit and I hope you're all still interested. I realize I've been talking for about half an hour now about uh, books you may or may not have read. Um, and I get <laughs> this is, of course, the entire point of the cannonball. Um, and if you're still listening uh, at this point, uh, God bless you. You're listening to me go on and on about an author who has meant so much to me. And in, in thinking about how I was going to, well, no, I... I there's there's more to there's more to talk about though because there's there's things to understand about Wolf also that is, is he has certain limitations and there are certain certain hobby horses that he has that I don't share particularly but that's not an it's not necessarily an impediment to I don't know to enjoying the experience of reading I will say that Wolf is not the He's not the most accomplished writer of women characters. And I don't mean necessarily that he is uh, openly disrespectful of women or, or even misogynistic necessarily. I will say that Wolf's work has a very, very, very strong streak of Madonna horror complex. Um, if uh, y'all aren't familiar with the term, the it's the sort of tendency to present women as either idealized, perfect beings or as irredeemably compromised uh, and sexualized and uh, otherwise uh, sort of objectified. Well, I guess in both cases they're objectified. You can, they can either be on a pedestal or, say, in a gutter. And Gene Wolfe, while the women characters that he writes are... they have full voices, uh, I, I, w I would feel. I don't think he shortchanges them very much. It's very, very clear that that they are being sorted into sort of one of these two camps, and even not necessarily, um, not even necessarily in a, in a disrespected way, if they fall into the horror side of the Madonna horror complex. 
but I was struck in in reading uh, another series of his, uh, the Book of the Long Sun, which basically every woman character is either, in, at least in the in the in the main narrative, every woman character is either literally a nun or literally has worked as is a sex worker. Uh, that's the 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 main women characters, and there are several, are either women that the main character, uh, a man named Silk, uh, in this setting, all the uh, male people are named after uh, animals or animal products, and women are named after plants or plant products, and androids are named after minerals. Um, but our main character, Silk, is a, uh, a kind of priest at a uh, sort of a, a parish school for, in the service of a, a particular god of which there are many but he is the uh the sort of priest and schoolmaster in you know worshiping this particular one and there are women who basically uh exist as nuns uh within this uh religious construct and he gets wrapped up in uh the criminal underworld of his particular society and so meets women who have been exploited and used within that criminal underworld and for sex work practices it was very striking as i read it that like well I mean, it's it's there's no there's no clearer way to uh, exhibit the uh, the Madonna whore simplifying tendency than that. And again, I'm not enough of a wolf scholar to know how much of that is intentional, how much of that is just the way that his conceptions fell out as he was writing. Um, and part of this may part of informing that may be the fact that Mr. Wolf was a an observant Catholic. And he was a very Catholic writer uh, in that many of the themes and imagery and sort of what we might call, not presuppositions, but um, what is the word I'm looking for? Well, I can't, I can't really think of it at the moment. I do need to take another sip of beer. Mr. Wolf was toe-to-tip Catholic. Um, <laughs> there is a great deal of Catholic imagery. Um and while I am not myself a believer, um, I'm not a believer of uh, any religious tradition, um, I'm not a religious person at all, um, but I have a great deal of respect for and fascination with religious traditions. I mean, it's it's a, a nearly universal, it's, it's very, very nearly universal for all human societies to have something like a religious tradition. It's a vastly important aspect of human experience, and it's not anything that I'm going to denigrate or disrespect basically that, that would be i think ludicrous and foolish to do so but it's, it's very clear that mr wolf's work is very uh informed by his religion and i've read a lot of other writers who you know that is that is the case and it always feels very ham-fisted it feels very shoehorned it's it strikes a false note during the narrative somehow when the whatever particular religious uh, sort of axe to grind comes in. And Wolf, I think, had a much more, he had a much more holistic way of working in his Catholic conceptions uh, into his works and, and a different way of expressing them and celebrating them. And one of my absolute favorites comes from a, a series which was a sequel to the uh, Book of the Long Sun, which I just mentioned, which had the really very outsized Madonna War complex uh, issue with it. Um, it is a, a sequel series where the uh, the characters in the Book of the Long Sun, it, as it uh, as it turns out, were all occupants on 
a multi-generational uh, colony starship, which had been constructed out of a hollowed-out asteroid, which had one long light source along its uh, rotating axis, which was the long sun of the title. Uh, but the Book of the Short Sun, which is the uh, set in uh, after that ship has reached its destination, its inhabitants have exited the uh, that asteroid and have founded uh, new cities on uh, the planets of blue and green. Blue is uh, dominated by seas, green by jungles. They have found a new city-states, and as is often the case, a couple you know decades go by, and human conflicts rear their ugly heads. And uh, the point of view character in this trilogy, a man named Horn, is traveling around and ends up becoming uh, caught up in some of these intrigues and conflicts. And he is at one point beseeching help from uh, a god known to these people as the Outsider as it's sort of existing, well, as we might know, outside of the asteroid, because inside the asteroid, everyone had, you know, was a devotee of one or the other of a pantheon of what we might call pagan deities, who, as it turns out, were actually the uploaded consciousnesses in an AI of a tyrannical royal family from back on old Earth. But part of the story of the Long Sun and the New Sun is uh, these people emancipating themselves from these uh, these false gods. And it's very, very clear that... Uh, in, in Wolf's conception, the the living God, who is known as the Outsider and is known to us as the God of the Old and New Testament, is real in this setting and has affected these people. And something that I think really brings that home, it's, it's, it's never outright stated, but it's something that brings that home and something that was very moving and beautiful to me in, uh, in one of these works uh, in, uh, where uh, Horn, our, our character, has gotten himself wrapped up in some conflicts, uh, and he's hoping to beseech the outsider for some help. And I'll just read, I guess I'll, I'll just read how, uh, how he goes about it. Um, previously in the sort of the pagan days inside the asteroid, they would practice animal sacrifice. And he is here with a, uh, an, an animal companion, a, a, a bird uh, by the name of uh, Oreb, a, a trained bird who has been following him. <clears throat> Reading from uh, In Green's Jungles, where he says, at last, I rose and lifted my face to the dark winter sky. I have no knife for sacrifice, I said, and I spoke aloud as one man does to another. Even if I had my old knife back, I would not give you Oreb, who has led me here to you. You will reclaim us both quickly enough, but you did not condemn me, or at least I dared to hope you did not, when I sacrificed for all of you. I opened the leather burst that Valenta gave me when we left Blanco, found the piece of Soldi's flatbread I had put there before setting out, and struck by the idea of sharing the simple meal we shared with our prisoners at midday, climbed down and fetched the last of my wine from my saddlebag. The second climb should not have been worse than the first, yet should have been worse than the first, yet it was not. I was tired, my ankle pained me, and my fingers, which had been cold from the beginning, were colder than ever. But all the emptiness I had felt when I had tried to pray had vanished so completely I could almost believe that they had never been. I was happy. And more, if an old instructor had appeared and demanded to know the reason for my happiness, I would only have laughed at him for needing causes and explanations for so simple a matter. I was alive, and the outsider, who knows very well what sort of creature I am, cared about me in spite of all. This is what I have, I told him, and raised my bread and my bottle, displaying them to the low gray clouds. I beseech you to share them with me, and I pray that you will not object to me and my animals sharing them with you, then I broke the bread in two, laid half of it upon his altar, poured wine over it, 
cautioning Oreb not to touch it. After that, I wet a bit with a little of the wine and gave it to Oreb, ate a bite myself, drank deeply from the bottle and recorked it, and put away what remained of the bread. And here we have Wolf writing in a setting, uh, it actually turns out to be the same setting as the Book of the New Sun. These are people tens of thousands of years removed from the last person to have ever even heard of what a Christian is, recapitulating the celebration of the Eucharist. And it struck me that what Wolf, I guess, has shown here is that, or what Wolf is conveying, that even, it's, it's very hard to describe just why this was so affecting to me. And I think part of it is because the religious traditions that we have, the, the God of the Old and New Testament, is very much a God of history. It's, it's a God of, these are things that happened in the concrete past that we know about, that we have these books about, and we read about. And God works in history, and God is there in history. And yet here we have people in a society utterly cut off from that history, who have no idea that that had ever happened. And yet here they are recapitulating this commemoration of a sacrifice. And I would think that to Wolf, that's because there was one final true sacrifice. There may have been sacrifices after that, but they weren't to anyone or anything. There was one true final sacrifice, and that's an eternal truth. And if it's an eternal truth, then it can always be rediscovered. And here we have a man in a moment of desperation on a planet light years away from where the events of the New Testament happened, accidentally recapitulating the Eucharist, the central ritual, the central feast and commemoration of a church which he has never heard of and no one he has ever known has ever heard of and no one in tens of thousands of years had ever heard of. I was blown away by that because... I think it shows a tremendous respect for his own faith on the part of Mr. Wolf and a, and a very sincere and deep respect for that faith that I can't help but respond to and respect in turn. And it's a beautiful moment. And it's one I think about a lot. And in part, it's because of writing like Gene Wolf's and, and moments like that, that despite how, how frustrated or how exasperated I can become with the ways that religious feeling is expressed, the ways that religious feeling inspires people to act or doesn't inspire people to act. I'll, I'll, I'll never say that, I can never say that it's wrong. I can never cut anyone down for having faith. And I think in that passage, in this imaginary conception that Mr. Wolf created with his writing. He got at the nub of uh, why, I don't know, why I can always, why it will never entirely erase the fact that you have to respect something that has meant so much to so many people. And as far as Gene Wolf is concerned, always will, because it's always there, because it's the truth. And I think with all this, we get at the nub of what Gene Wolfe meant to me, why he made the impact that he did. And it comes back to what we talk about a lot on the Cannonball, the affective experience of reading, the way that reading a great work, or you know, or not even a great work, the way that reading a work can 
affect your interiority, the way that it makes you feel as you read it, the way that it brings to mind this or that, this affect. And I think the great, the, the greatness at the core of science fiction and fantasy, the, 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 the fantastical, that uh, the fantastical tradition in literature, which goes back a long, long way, even before, of course, the sort of codification of science fiction as we know it with uh, Frankenstein, the, the core of that, what makes it so valuable is the affect of wonder, the sense of wonder. And if you do much reading about science fiction in a kind of critical sense, or even in a kind of, um, if you do much sort of reading in a kind of, I don't know, just, you know, appreciating, you know, why people even like it, people will talk about the sense of wonder. It's a cliche at this point, but it's true. It's the kind of, you get a feeling, you get a feeling of awe, you get a feeling when you read and you generate imagery of worlds beyond what you've seen that exist entirely in imagination and yet have a verisimilitude that you can picture it you can you can make it real in your own mind and feel wonder at this at these images at these ideas you know that's the core of the appeal in science fiction there is also an affect of wonder in writing itself there's an affect of wonder in reading a piece of writing think about times that you've read a piece of writing and you've just been bowled over by say the elegance of the prose, the way in which it described whatever it's describing. Then, you know, it doesn't have to be something outlandish. It doesn't have to be an, uh, an asteroid uh, full of people who have been traveling on it for thousands of years and, and, and cities spread across its interior. It can be the description of, uh, of, of dew on a leaf. It can be, God, it can be, it can be Moby Dick. It can be this description of, of a, a powerful terrestrial animal, but you're reading it. And as you're reading it, you're in awe of what the writer has accomplished and how they have elicited this feeling in you. You have to set the book down and you, and you, and you, and you have to feel it. You can't keep reading it. You have to feel it. What Gene Wolfe did for me was to accomplish both of those at the same time. And that... <laughs> That is what made him one of the most profound reading experiences of my life. And that's why I will always go back to him. And, and despite his shortcomings, despite his faults, despite some very definite blind spots as a religiously, if not politically conservative, uh, you know, white professional class man living in uh, 20th century and early 20th century, first century America, he, in his writing, brought such craft, such attention, such love, such precision, such true craft to the writing that all at the same time I'm being moved by the way in which these words have been put together. I am moved to this upwelling of spirit at these transcendent images and ideas and fantastical places. And it all happens at once. And it's a magic that I have a hard time talking about. As you can tell that I'm now almost, I'm over 45 minutes in. And I, I still don't think I've explained it very well to all of y'all. But that's really, if this has made any sense, or if there's any kind of nub of sense in any of this, or if any of this sounded very interesting to you, I would urge you to go out and read Gene Wolfe, one of the, really one of the true masters of 
American science fiction, at science fiction in the English language. I don't know I don't know how much longer the genre has. I feel that science fiction is placed very specifically within a context of uh, it's it's placed very specifically within a context of the kind of unraveling and and the consequences of enlightenment rationalism combined with uh, and rapid industrialization and rapid technological change. I don't know what the future holds for those kinds of phenomena, and and while I'm sure that there will always be fantastical literature, I don't know that there will ever be such a you know I don't know how much longer the thing that we call science fiction has, but while it existed, I think Gene Wolfe mastered it in a way that I don't think we will ever see again. And even if the genre itself goes on forever, I, I don't think we'll ever see a writer quite like Gene Wolfe ever again. And I know I won't. There's a lot of my biography which is poured into my love of this man's writing, as we got into at the top of this uh, special episode. And that, I can't extricate that from it. And I don't think I should. I don't think anyone should. This is the subjective aspect that we're talking about on the cannonball. You, all you have is your life. All you have is your life. Anytime you encounter these texts, it's you encountering those texts at a time in your life, with the time that you've had, with the experiences that you've had. It's a unique experience every time. No one has ever read Homer the same way twice. No one's ever going to read Gene Wolfe the same way twice. This is my Gene Wolfe. And I'm, I'm very glad for the uh, opportunity to talk about it. There are very few authors which I would be moved to try to explain myself about. And Gene Wolfe is one of them. And thank you for listening to me go on and on about how an author made me feel. I urge you all, please go out and read Gene Wolfe. Two good ways in. Uh, the, the books I talked about, uh, I guess, really, you know, the, the, the books I talked about, uh, uh, Peace is uh, more realistic, sort of in the vein of literary fiction. Uh, the Book of the New Sun, um, absolutely for anyone who's comfortable with science fiction or fantasy, just dive right in and be prepared to be puzzled and amazed. Soldier in the Mist, for anyone who enjoys historical fiction or history in general, it is an absolutely phenomenal and I think real achievement in historical fiction, which also has all these hallmarks of what made Gene Wolfe the writer he was. And I want to leave you all with a, a short quote from a character in the Book of the New Sun, who said, You've heard tales of necromancers, she said, who fish for the spirits of the dead. Do you know there are vivimancers among the dead? who call to them those who can make them live again. Gene Wolfe is in the realm of the dead, and he is a vivimancer. And he calls to me, and he'll call to me for the rest of my life, I think. Thank you for listening. This has been a special bonus cannonball, a personal appreciation of Gene Wolfe.